Welcome all to another episode of Aghast at the Past, 1892, our January 4th episode. Thank you to those of you who emailed me with opinions on this new show. Overall, very favorable, which I am delighted to hear. And this is such a niche podcast idea, so I don't expect a lot of people to listen. I mean, yeah, it's true crime. Yeah, it's history. But 1892, I mean, it's weird, I know. But um, for me, I guess it's so wild to think that while everything around us changes, our environments, the kind of vehicles we drive, the food we eat, the furniture we sit in, our views of the larger world, we remain the same. Uh, There were dumb people in 1892, and there are now. There were bullies back then. There are now. There were vulnerable people, poor people, rich people, privileged people, all doing the same stuff then as, as we do now. Why don't we change? Why don't we learn from our mistakes? Everything we experience in the present has been experienced a million times before. I mean albeit in a slightly different setting, a different era, every emotion we feel, someone has also felt it, and probably felt it more painfully than we do now or could ever imagine. I don't know. Um, I take some comfort in that. But there's also an underlying sadness, uh, uh, an overwhelming sense of tragedy, that we don't seem to learn at all from our mistakes. We just keep living the same horrors, the same ridiculousness, over and over and over. (sighs) So let's head to Monday, January 4th, shall we? And can I say before we begin how cool it is that our days of the week match up with those in 1892? I didn't plan it that way. (laughs) All right, so let's move on to some dark stuff. First, a weird little accident I found buried on page 3 of the Chicago Tribune. How I find this stuff, I have no idea. Joseph Cassenbrook, while walking on Washington Street near LaSalle yesterday afternoon, fell in an epileptic fit. He was smoking a cob pipe, and when he fell downward, the pipe stem pierced his throat. An ambulance was called and he was removed to his home, North Number 5 South Canal Street. The wound was not serious, although painful. I'll bet. So I find it almost unbelievable how local papers often printed the most intimate details of family life in the wake of tragedies like suicide. Here is an example from the Daily Times. New Brunswick, New Jersey. A horrible suicide. A well-known young man and an ex-high school pupil. 
The residents of Mine and Union Streets were horrified Saturday afternoon by the intelligence that William Baum, who resided at the corner of Union and Mine Streets, had committed suicide by cutting his throat with a razor. Investigation proved the truth of the report. A local paper published yesterday the following version of the sad occurrence. Yesterday afternoon, about 4 o'clock, William Baum, a man aged about 28 years, cut his throat from ear to ear on Mine Street, about 75 feet from his residence. The man had been married about a year and had a young child who was ill. The wife was formerly a servant in Dr. Shannon's house and also in places in New York. She had saved about $650, part of which she used for furnishing the house and keeping it. The couple disagreed because of the interference of the husband's mother, and quarrels were frequent. Baum worked in the jam factory and had lately been drinking heavily. A few days ago, the wife drew the last $50 she had in the savings bank and put it on the mantelpiece, intending to pay off some bills. Yesterday, she found that but $5 was left, and she and her husband had a quarrel. He left the house and the wife followed him, begging him to give up his bad habits. But he walked down the street and, as above recorded, cut his throat. About an hour before, this Mrs. Baum had been to see Dr. Shannon to get some medicine for her child and then told of her troubles. Mrs. Baum is said to be a most estimable woman. Another version is that the money was locked up in a bureau drawer and that deceased found the keys, unlocked the drawer, and thus gained possession of the money. Coroner Shannon, after hearing the circumstances, permitted the body to be removed to the suicide's late home. Baum was an ex-high school pupil. This story out of Pennsylvania's Carbondale Daily News, off of a wire service. Ex-Senator Gushy shot. The main politician said to have been caught in the wrong house. Rockland, Maine, January 4th. A sensational shooting affray occurred here Thursday night, but the fact of which has only just leaked out. Ex-Senator Stephen J. Gushy, politician widely known in the state, was the victim. While the shot was fired with murderous intent by a young man named Weed. Gushy is badly wounded and may die, and Weed is held to await the results of his injuries. There's a scandal connected with the affair, if young Weed's explanation of the shooting can be believed. He says he started on a hunting expedition on Thursday, when he announced that he would be gone several days. On that night, however, a severe storm arose, and Weed, who had left his young wife alone at home, decided to return at once so as to assure her of his safety. I'll bet you know where this is going. He reached his home about midnight 
entered the house and went to his room. He was stunned to find therein a man, nearly nude. The interloper, when he saw the wronged husband, made a dash for the window, and Weed says he then raised his gun and impulsively fired at the retreating figure. By the flash of the gun, he recognized the man as ex-Senator Gushy. Gushy was badly wounded, but nevertheless succeeded in reaching his own home. The affair has created a great sensation. Stephen Gushy, by the way, uh, would not die from this shooting. As for Weed, I don't know what happened to him, but I think we can all agree he has a name that deserves to be a character in a television show somewhere if it hasn't been used yet already. This story off the front page of the San Francisco Examiner. Disturbing. About a random attack on a little girl on a busy downtown street. This one is graphic. Pretty little four-year-old Georgie Bates came very near losing her life at the hands of a crazy man last night. Vlahau Bausen an Austrian tailor who resides at 1122 Larkin Street, plunged the blade of his pocket knife through her skull, the point just touching her brain. Then he tried to escape, but several people who saw him pursued and he was captured. The little girl was taken to a drugstore and afterward to the receiving hospital, where a piece of the knife blade three-quarters of an inch in length was taken from her skull. The child's mother was Mrs. George Bates, who is the wife of an attorney living at 609 Montgomery Avenue, who had taken Georgie to dinner with her to the Nevada restaurant. And after the meal was finished, she walked slowly up Kearney Street to market, and then out the latter thoroughfare, expecting to meet with her husband. Soon after leaving the restaurant, she became conscious that a man was following her. But at first, she paid but little attention to the fellow, supposing that that was the best way to get rid of him. But as she traversed block after block, the strange man still kept behind her. Occasionally, she would glance over her shoulder, hoping that he would not be there. But each time, she was disappointed. Then she would quicken her pace, hoping to outstrip him, or walk very slowly so that he should pass. But he still kept a few paces in the rear, and every time she looked around, he was glaring at the child. Although decidedly uncomfortable, Mrs. Bates did not become afraid, for she thought that with so many people around, there would be no danger to her or the little girl. It did not occur to her that the man following her was a lunatic. Just before the corner of Turk and Market Streets was reached, Bowsen quickly stepped up close to the little one, and with a sweep of his right arm drove the blade of a large knife into her head. Then he tried to withdraw it, but the blade broke, leaving the point embedded in the bone. The baby called to her mother, who had not seen the assault. Oh, Mama, she said, and then began to cry. The mother, turning quickly, saw the little girl's torn cap and the blood streaming down her long black curls. 
been dripping in crimson streaks over her white dress. The sight nearly overcame her. She noticed the man running away, but was too much shocked to cry out. But the mother had no need to call attention to Bowson. A crowd was already at his heels. He dodged into side doors and out again, managing to evade his followers until he reached Taylor Street. Then he ran down Taylor to Turk and back again to Market, where policeman Callanan arrested him. At the New City Hall, he was charged with assault to murder. The little girl was taken to Happersburger's drugstore and afterwards to the receiving hospital. The surgeon in charge found that the skull had been penetrated and was obliged to use considerable force in order to remove the point of the knife blade. The force of the blow had chipped away a piece of the bone. Nearly all of the little girl's thick black curls had to be cut off in order that the wound might be dressed properly. After the first fright, she did not utter a murmur. Even with the point of a knife blade pressed against her brain, she made no complaint of pain. When everything had been done for her, she was taken home. With her head surrounded by cracked ice in order to keep down the inflammation and fever, she lay quietly in bed, a large, gaily dressed doll locked in her arms. She is a very handsome child with large dark eyes, clear olive complexion, in long black curls. She cheerfully said that she guessed she'd be all right tomorrow. When searched at the New City Hall station, there was found in Bowson's pocket a discharge from Agnew's Insane Asylum, dated September 25, 1890. When asked why he had stabbed the child, he said, Last Friday night, I buy me a knife for four bits and go out to kill. I know nobody, but I kill any man or woman or boy or girl so that my case is all right in the court. On Friday, I find a boy on post in Kearney and strike him in his head with my knife, but the knife broke and I cut my hand. The boy ran away and I go home. Tonight, I buy me a knife at Clay and Kearney and look for somebody to kill. On Market and Taylor, I see a woman and a girl. The girl was maybe five years. I struck the girl, but the knife break. I don't see why I never get a good knife. I try to strike the girl on the top of her head so to kill her, but not do it. If I kill anybody, my case will be all right. The knife used by Bowson was a common two-bladed weapon the larger blade, which was the one used, having been three and a half inches long, but three quarters of an inch remained in the skull of the stabbed child, the blade breaking. The article continues on. It says that Bowson couldn't say exactly why it was that he singled out the girl. It goes on to report that the police had found a bloody knife handle with a broken blade at the lodging house he was staying in. So I did a quick search on Ancestry.com and found Vloho Bausen. In the 1900 U.S. Census, eight years after the stabbing, a resident of the Agnews State Hospital for the Insane. Back again for good, I guess. 
As for little Georgie Bates, I have some happy news to share. She not only survived the attack, but would marry, have her own little girl, also named Georgie, and die in 1969 at the age of 82. So things have been moving forward agonizingly slowly in the search for Tina Davis. On January 4th, the Fall River Daily Herald, Fall River, Massachusetts, had some small but interesting updates to to quench its readers' thirst for news on the mystery. By the way, the Fall River Daily Herald will be a newspaper we will be referring to frequently later this summer. Any guesses why? Say it out loud with me. Fall River is the hometown of Lizzie Borden. And yes, when the Borden murders happen, I will be here to give you a blow-by-blow account. Maybe I shouldn't have said it quite that way. (laughs) I will give you a detail-by-detail account of how it all unfolded for newspaper readers. But I'm getting way ahead of myself here. So let's go on to this story and, and clear up a couple of things first. Uh, because we'll be talking about the Tina Davis case for a number of months. So first, geography. Everett, Massachusetts, which is where these events are taking place, is a city just north of Boston and bordered by the Mystic River. And the Mystic River flows from Lower Mystic Lake through cities, areas like Everett, Medford, East Boston, before finally joining the Charles River and emptying into Boston Harbor. Secondly, Tina Davis, the missing woman. Her full name was Deltina Davis, although some papers at the beginning of the story were calling her Lena or Delina. You know how this initial reporting goes, filled with mistakes. So here is the latest on Tina Davis. Malden, Massachusetts, January 4th. In her cozy little house over the dry goods store, near the corner of Broadway and Ferry Street, Everett, an old lady lies dangerously sick because the daughter who is her mainstay and strength has disappeared. The woman is Mrs. Mary Jane Davis. On the evening of December 23rd, her daughter Tina, a young woman 26 years old, put on her hat and coat at 7 o'clock and said she was going out to meet her lover who was in duty bound by the girl's condition to marry her, and which he had promised to do. There's a little bit of a twist. This lover, Mrs. Davis says, is Albert Trefethen, the young man of whom Mrs. Davis bought the store which she now occupies, and who has supplied her and her daughter with dry goods from the team which he drove through the suburban towns. The mother openly accused him of taking her daughter away somewhere and concealing her. She also accuses him of promising to marry Tina and of having seduced her under that promise. All this the young man denied promptly and emphatically. And then he went out. On the afternoon of December 24th, about 4.30 o'clock, Mrs. Davis received a letter neither dated nor signed, but postmarked Boston, December 24th, 7 a.m. This letter contained these words. Mother, when you get this, I shall be dead. The one you think is guilty is innocent. Goodbye. Mrs. Davis read this letter 
compared it with her daughter's writing and refused to credit it. She said the writing was not the same. On the morning of Saturday, December 26th, Patrick Gray was dumping some swill into the Mystic River near the Medford Turnpike when he saw a lady's hat. And having read the story of the girl who was missing from Everett, he brought the hat to Chief Emerton. It was taken to Mrs. Davis, who recognized it at once as the hat worn by her daughter on the evening when she disappeared. And then the mother fainted. Those who believe in the theory of suicide, however, say that possibly the girl went down to the water's edge and there, before throwing herself in, took off her hat and placed it on the ground. The hat might have remained on the shore until a breeze or an unusually high tide, of which there have been several recently, launched it on its slow voyage up the Mystic River. Mrs. Davis's son, Charles, arrived in Everett from Bethel, Maine, Saturday. In conversation with a reporter last night, he said that there was no doubt of the identity of the hat. It was the one worn by his sister on the evening when she was last seen alive. But of the handwriting of the letter, he could not speak positively. He thought there were some points of resemblance and others of difference. Mr. Davis made one statement that is of interest in the way of confirmation of his mother's testimony that Trefethen had been keeping company with Tina. He said that over a year ago, his mother wrote him about the young man Trefethen, who was paying attention to Tina, and who, she thought, would marry her. His attentions, said Mr. Davis, have been an understood thing by people who knew him and Tina. Mr. Trefethen himself was seen at his home yesterday. He said at first that he could not say anything about the case. He did, however, answer some questions. He said that he could not talk understandingly of the case because he did not know what to make of the matter. Mr. Trefethen, when asked if he had never paid marked attention to Tina, replied at once that he had never paid her any attention at all. He had never shown in any way that he was interested in the girl, and she had never manifested any affection for him. Mrs. Davis made to my face the charges that have been printed in connection with this case, said Mr. Trefethen, and I denied them very promptly and emphatically. I think if the girl is in the unfortunate condition described by her mother, someone else who is responsible for it is trying to lay the blame on me. There is not the slightest truth in the story that she asked me to marry her, or in the story that I met her in Charlestown the day before she disappeared, or on the evening of the 23rd. I never met her away from her store and never went anywhere with her. And that is all the young man would say. Chief Emberton says that there is no difficulty in proving that Trefethen paid very marked attention to Miss Davis. There are witnesses to this, in spite of what Trefethen himself says. The chief also says that Mrs. Davis named several dates when Trefethen was at the store with her daughter, and even names the date on which the daughter says he seduced her. In the interviews with Trefethen, he admitted to the chief that he was at the store with the daughter, on each of these dates mentioned by Mrs. Davis. 
A careful search of the marshes about the Mystic River is underway, and it is probable that the river itself will be dragged. All the well-known places where a girl in the condition of Tina Davis might go are also being investigated, but so far with no results which throw any light on the case. Much, much more of the Tina Davis case to come. And once again, we have all survived a grisly day in 1892. Until we meet again, which will likely be very soon. I'm Eric Rivenis.